Yeah, but they're beautiful on the inside. You know what I mean? A distinction is being drawn between beautiful and beautiful. One, we're saying beauty is only skin deep. But there's another kind of beauty. With that in mind, that whole thinking about the different nuances of beauty and how we think about beauty and how we think about intelligence, I want to go back to intelligence. Because really, if you look at the epistle reading from Paul, And think about not only what Paul says here about the wise and the unwise, but take it back to the Old Testament and the discussion in the wisdom literature, which has to do with the various kinds of intelligence, such as found in Psalms and Proverbs and Song of Solomon and Ecclesiastes, and how intelligence or wisdom is measured or weighed. Because in many ways in our culture, we highly regard and value intelligent people. Right? Don't we? Why? Why? Because they're all good? Because they're all perfect? Because they always do everything right? Because they always improve our life? No, because they can often be translated into success or money. That's why. Yes, they can help us. Yes, they can bless us. But intelligence in and of itself, if it's merely just brain power, you can still be dishonest, you can still be corrupt, you can still be immoral. But we value intelligence in our culture. So we tend to defer to people who are intelligent, right? They interview people on television or in magazines or on the radio. And by the mere fact that they're intelligent people... Therefore, we should take what they say as God's truth. Whoa. That's interesting. That's an interesting thought. Because many scientists and university professors today are agnostic or atheists. And yet at the same time, Scripture says... A fool says in his heart, there is no God. Isn't that interesting? You know, when you begin to think about what Scripture says is true wisdom or true knowledge, as opposed to what we value in our culture, in our society, as intelligence or true knowledge, sometimes they're in opposition to each other. Even though we value intelligence, sometimes they can be in direct opposition. Because what does Scripture also say? The beginning, fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The book of Proverbs, the first chapter, verse 7, sets the tone for what Proverbs is about, which is about wisdom, which is about laying out this contrast between foolish people and wise people. And how it is we make wise decisions for our lives, good decisions for our lives, and what will impact people around us. The fear of God is the beginning of that. When we understand who God is, He created everything. He's all-powerful. He's all-good. He's the one that made us, if you will, the computer designer. He knows what's best for us. And He wants to guide us and tell us how to live so that we might be 
blessed, so that we might be filled with joy, so that we might experience peace and love. But it's understanding His greatness, His awesomeness, so that we can begin to get grips on, therefore, how shall we live? That's wisdom. It's the knowledge applied. You know, what's really interesting is the one who is attributed with a lot of what is written in the wisdom literature, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, is King Solomon. And if you know anything about King Solomon, King Solomon, during his day, was considered not only the most successful, wealthy, powerful king of his day, but what else? He was wise. He was wise. If you know the story about Solomon. When God spoke to him in a dream and said, what is it that you want? He asked for wisdom. And people used to come, including the Queen of Sheba, to seek him out, to see his wisdom, to hear of his wisdom. And he made wise decisions. There's a wonderful Bible story about it. Read it. But then by the time he gets toward the end of his life, let me read to you a verse from Ecclesiastes, chapter 4. Better is a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king. Isn't that an interesting line? See, because what he's saying is, when I was young, and I actually had wisdom when I was young because it was God-given, that really showed me how to live and how to understand life. But then, because I was so enamored with my success and my wealth and my building programs, that he multiplied wives, and he literally had hundreds of wives, which right there tells you he wasn't too bright anymore. And then he began, because of these wives, to bring in idols into the kingdom. And he began to lose his way. So much so that when he gets to the end of his life, toward the end of his life, he says, you know, when I was young, I was wise. And I made good decisions. And even though I built up the kingdom and built up my wealth and my power and my reputation... My life has become more bankrupt. And what happened right after Solomon died? The kingdom split. Because Solomon did not build wisdom into his kingdom, into his life. He lost his focus. He lost his center. Going on in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. That's the goal. That when we really understand the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, that as we move from fear to love, to trust Him, to really be willing to listen to Him, that He will guide us in all of His ways. That He wants to bless us. You know, further on in Proverbs, a wonderful section of Scripture, Proverbs chapter 9. And if you have a pew Bible in front of you and you're inclined, turn to page 580. Page 580, chapter 9. 
The title of the first section in chapter 9 is called Wisdom's Feast. What a wonderful title. Wisdom's Feast. And it says, Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. We're going to get back to that. She has slaughtered her animals. She has mixed her wine. She has also set aside her table. She has sent out servant girls. She calls from the highest places in the town. You that are simple, turn in here. To those without sense, she says, come, eat of my bread and drink of the wine that I've mixed. Lay aside immaturity and live and walk in the way of insight. It's almost like the prodigal son. The dad kills the fatted calf, sets out a feast and says, y'all come because I want to bless you. And that's what the Lord says. That's what communion is about. That's what Jesus said in the gospel reading for today. Eat my flesh, drink my, my blood. Be so intimately connected with me. Be so fed by me. Because if you really want to understand a blessed life, if you really want to be filled, if you really want to live with this wisdom so that you might experience joy and peace in all the fruit of the Spirit, then we grow in the intimacy and the knowledge and love of Him. Because it's wisdom that will bless us in this life and take us to the life of everlasting life with Him in heaven. Now with all that as background, <laughs> let's look at Ephesians 5. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. Be careful then how you live, not as unwise people, but as wise making the most of time because the days are evil. Paul picks up this whole notion and idea of living a wise and an unwise life. He's applying the gospel. He's talking to the church, which he does in Ephesians 4 and the early part of Ephesians 5. And he says, church, if you're going to be the church, one of the things you need to do to understand God's ways is growing this wisdom of the knowledge and love of the Lord and then begin to live it out as the church. And you have two choices before you. You can live a wise life or you can live an unwise life. And it's really interesting, once again going back to Proverbs, you need to understand when, when he's referring to unwise as a rabbi, because he was a rabbi before he became a Christian, that he would know the different nuances of the word unwise or fool. The term occurs about a hundred times in the book of Proverbs, fool. But there are nuances of differences that you can figure out by the word and by the context. Let me tell you what some of them are. Weak-minded. Strong-willed. Perverse and wicked. One of my favorites is sluggard. Or as I used to call my boys when they would sit around and I'd try to get them to, to work, slug. There's so many different nuances of foolishness. But it gets down to self-centeredness, which is one of the nuances. That when you begin to live for yourself or you live for your own pleasure, perversity, wickedness. You really want other people to serve you don't want to serve. And so you're lazy. You're a slugger. See, foolish, foolishness has so many different applications to one's life, living in an unwise way. And Paul is saying, as the church, 
We need to seek to be a wise people, not a lazy people. And so there's a contrast that exists between these two kinds of beliefs, ideas. What's in our mind, if you will? Because that's what we think of when we think of wisdom. But wisdom is associated with belief. Belief has a has an impact on the mind, has an impact on the feelings, has an impact on the will, and therefore, how we live. It's never separated. It's never devoid. How you believe is going to determine how you live. What you think is wise or wisdom to get you where you want to go. And God has a design and a plan. God's wisdom. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Great verses to memorize. That's what Paul's driving at here. God wants to make your path straight. You know, there are 31 chapters in Proverbs. I encourage you, I encourage you, over the next 31 days, about a month, Read a proverb a day. And begin to look at the distinction between foolishness, unwise living, and what God's kind of wisdom really is all about. Because there's nearly a hundred references to both foolishness and wisdom in Proverbs. Now getting into some specifics about foolishness, Paul goes on in the context of this verse and a couple verses later, to give nuances of what happens when someone is unwise and yet thinks they're intelligent. The first is, they become scoffers. What does a scoffer do? A scoffer mocks. A scoffer is sardonic. A scoffer scorns other people. And if you ever watch someone who believes they're intelligent and how they look down upon people who believe contrary to them, how they can scoff, how they can scorn. Take, for example, if you go to a university today and you're taking a class and they're talking about evolution or the Big Bang Theory and you say, I believe in creation. How you would be scorned and scoffed at by many professors today. How could you possibly believe something so ignorant when we have ample scientific evidence? It's the only theory out there, and it's still a theory. But it's ample scientific evidence that it's got to be the Big Bang. God can't enter the picture. And yet Scripture says, the fool says in their heart, there is no God. Just interesting to begin to think about that variation. You can get scoffed at. There are people who don't believe there's an afterlife if they're atheists or agnostics. Or if there is... And this is where they always hedge their bet. Everybody gets to go to heaven, right? That's how you can always hedge your bet. 
After all, isn't God good? Isn't God forgiving? And so if that's the case and I can live how I want, guess who ultimately is the God of my life? Guess who ultimately determines what's good and evil for me? It goes back to Adam and Eve. That I'm wise unto myself. That my application of knowledge is my own knowledge for my own life. And so people in university today will basically scoff at people who believe in God and believe in creation and believe that there's an objective truth and believe that there is objective good and evil. Instead of relativism, instead of subjectivism, instead of maybe there's a God, maybe there's not a God, but in the end it all doesn't matter. There can't possibly be a hell. There can't possibly be such a thing as sin. I mean, how archaic. I was at a seminar yesterday at Low Country Community Church where they were talking about engaging the culture today. And in part of the dialogue, the presenter was wonderful, and part of the dialogue that was going on there, someone said, I was in a conversation and the person that I was talking with said, sin, there's no such thing as sin. It's just a matter of opinion. It's just a matter of belief. There's no such thing as sin. See, because there would have to be objective, right and wrong, good and evil, if there was such a thing as sin. So there is no sin. I think if there's one Christian doctrine where there's ample evidence is that there's sin. Look at the world around us. Violence, exploitation of people, dishonesty. There's sin. We can rationalize, we can justify. There's sin. And that gets us to another nuance of the word foolishness. And it's wickedness. Or evil, as Paul says here. That when we begin to think that wisdom is all about just intellect and knowledge and behavior and morality and character are not as essential as just having out-and-out intelligence. How wickedness can creep in. Either because we use our our intelligence for wicked ends Think about how many people hack computers, steal information. They're bright people. They're bright people. How many people run scams? They're bright people. They don't care about evil. Or there are people who are very bright, and most here are probably in that category, who just acquiesce to the world. 
That even without trying, we could make wicked or sinful decisions with our lives. We can fall into evil without trying because we're merely acquiescing to the wisdom of the world. I mean, the world says, intelligent people say, and therefore we fall into it. It's amazing how that can happen. And it can happen. And the question is, how do we react? How do we respond? How do we deal with that? See, because if we deny God's existence, or if we deny that there's a hell, if we deny that there's really objective truth or good and evil, then it doesn't matter. What we're doing right here doesn't matter. Faith doesn't matter. Life and how we live doesn't matter. Because either we die in the end, or everybody goes to heaven. And that's what you hear in the world. See, but I believe it does matter. I believe that's why Jesus died on the cross for you. Because our wisdom without him is not wisdom at all. We fall short, we sin, we fail. That's why the cross. That in and of ourselves and our own abilities, our own power of will, we will fail. Which is why God gives us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit that allows us to live with that kind of wisdom. Bear that kind of fruit. Have that kind of character. And it's interesting the analogy that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 5. Do not get drunk with wine, that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. He uses the example of being drunk. Why? I think there's two reasons. The first is... Well, take, for example, when I was younger, when I was a young man in my teen years, okay? And I, on a few occasions, had too much to drink and got drunk. You know, there's two things that happen when you do that. The first is I make bad decisions. I make decisions that I wouldn't otherwise make that are not good decisions because some of my ability to hold back from doing those dumb or stupid or sinful things isn't there anymore. Because I have an excuse. I had too many drinks. And so I do those things. The other thing that's much more subtle, that sometimes is elusive, is I'm not available. If I have too much to drink, I'm not available to help someone in a crisis with a problem. In a challenge, I'm not available. I'm not available to the Lord when I'm in that state. And you know, it's funny, when I was 19 years old, that's what finally dawned on me. Is I need to always be available to the Lord and to other people. And so I stopped at that point having too much to drink. It's an interesting challenge, isn't it? If we're always going to be available to the Lord and to each other. Just to think about. You know what? It doesn't take alcohol to be in that place. All it takes is a self-centered life. All it takes is anything that will draw us from the Lord and make us unavailable to other people, to love them, to serve them. And that's called sin. 
Because if we really understand God and who He is, and Jesus Christ is God incarnate, guess what? They're available 24-7, aren't they? And if we're called to be Christ-like, so are we. So it doesn't matter what the choice is. It's just that alcohol is a readily available analogy because it's so obvious. I think the other reason that he chose don't get drunk is because of Pentecost. Remember Pentecost? Pentecost is when the Holy Spirit came down on the apostles. And when they went out into the streets and the tongues were pouring out and people were hearing the gospel and they had gone from being fearful to bold and they had gone from just being consumed by their own grief, their own struggle, their own inability to know where to go, that God's Spirit now gave them the will and the wisdom. They were no longer fearful and they were bearing fruit. They were willing to proclaim the gospel. They weren't concerned what people thought about them or how they were treated. Because they were only consumed with God's will. What did people say about them that day? They're drunk. Isn't that interesting? You know what? I would rather be drunk with the Holy Spirit and have God in charge than a sober me in charge. Think about that one. Without God. See, because if God's in charge, He takes over all of who you are. And one of the other reasons why they observed that is because they were so full of joy. And the fear was gone. What if we lived our lives like that? What if we were so full of joy and the fear was gone? The fear of what those intelligent people might say about us, they might scoff. The fear of rejection of the world because we're willing to hold fast to God's call in our lives. We're willing to believe what He says. The fear's gone because we're willing to take on the person, the life of Jesus Christ, and to live it out no matter what happens. That we empty ourselves of ourselves and we're filled with the Spirit. And we share the fruit freely, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the kindness, the gentleness. That we're faithful and that we have self-control. What if? The what if is the result. If you read the passage further, they worshipped. They longed to worship. What does it say? They sang uh, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Let me translate that for you. Ancient worship music, traditional worship music, and contemporary worship music. It's nice how that worked out, isn't it? That's what it says. They didn't care the style. They just wanted to worship. And then it says making melody in their hearts because they were so full of the Spirit of the Lord that they wanted to be in contact with Him. They wanted to be His instruments in the world. 
And then it says they were thankful. They were filled with thanksgiving. I've mentioned that a couple of times over the last couple of weeks. What if we were always a thankful people because we are so confident in the Lord in our lives. We're resting in Him. So confident in our love of each other. And we're resting in the love of each other as we worship Him together. What if we were that kind of church? That's what Paul's writing about. He lays out the gospel in the first couple of chapters. He talks about the church. And then he begins to apply and says, This is what God's design and desire for your life is. It begins in Jesus Christ. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of your own doing, it's a gift of God. Not because of works, lest anyone should boast. We are not talking about earning your way to heaven. We're not talking about being a good person. We're talking about having Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. That His cross is before us. His Spirit is in us. And we want to live His life as the church, His bride. In love with Him, living it out in this life. Figuring it out in this life. Just as the wise men sought Jesus when He became a human being. So we, as His church, must be wise today and seek Him and live His life in the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's wisdom. Let's be a wise people. Please bow with me in prayer. In Proverbs chapter 9, verse 1. Wisdom has built her house. She has hewn her seven pillars. Seven is the number in Scripture for perfection. And God invites us to be perfect in wisdom. So that we might be a people who worships. Who is thankful. Who is full in love and compassion and joy. And who lives Jesus' self-sacrificial love for each other and for the world. Lord God, we pray this day that what stands before us is the cross of your Son, Jesus. That we would know him as Savior and that we desire him as Lord. That we would be so filled with the Holy Spirit that we would, that we would be filled with wisdom. Lord, in a day and age when intelligence is valued and intelligence is a gift, how devoid of the Spirit can become corrupt and eternally leads to destruction. Lord, I pray this day that we would be a wise people, not in the eyes of the world, but in your eyes knowing your Son, filled with your Spirit, living your life. Help us to be that kind of church, that kind of people. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.